You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. As you know, we have been walking slowly through the book of Philippians since last June, and so far it has been a wonderful journey. I hope that you have been blessed by it half as much as I have. I love the book of Philippians. I realize that that is a typical pastor's problem, that whatever book you're preaching or whatever book you happen to be immersed in is your favorite book at the time, but I can honestly say that that's true for me right now. The book of Philippians is just amazing. It is so good. It is so, so rich and so vibrant and so helpful, especially for us and just practical living for the Christian life. It's been wonderful, but since we broke from Missions Conference a couple weeks ago, something else has broken out and made its way into the heart of our community, and that's fear. Fear. You all know what I'm talking about. The coronavirus where COVID-19 has infected more than our bodies. It has shaken our community's resolve. And as with most life-threatening diseases, grown men have started acting like children. It's every man for himself as he claws his way through the lines at Costco and Safeway, right? I can't help but wonder, what are the lines going to look like for returns on April 1st when rent is due? I mean, it's ridiculous what is going on right now. So many people are just scared, and they're acting on fear. They're acting on impulse. You would think that the apocalypse was upon us. So unless you enjoy toilet paper memes, now is not a good time to be on social media, right? Because that's all we see. On the one hand, fear and panic is out of hand. And everything that we see wants to, everything within us wants to fight against the hype, right? We want to fight against everything that we see of of all of the the, just fearful, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. But at the same time, we know that we need to take precautions and we need to encourage others to do the same. So how do we balance these things? Do we take an either-or mentality or a both-and approach? And what does that look like? Well, Martin Luther had to deal with something far worse than COVID-19 throughout his ministry. In his day, the Black Plague was on everybody's mind. And listen to this quote. I want to share this with you because uh, I really appreciate how Martin Luther approached that issue. Here's how he approached the Black Plague. He writes, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us, then I shall fumigate. Help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed, in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others, and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. Now there's one hand, right? And that's good. And every germaphobe in the room says, amen, right? Okay, we got three. So for the rest of you, he goes on to say, if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me. And so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. 
See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. I like that. I really do. It's well said, Pastor Luther. Well said. As the church, we are not to be brash or foolhardy, but at the same time, we can't afford to be afraid. Originally, I planned on opening Psalm 121 today, but it's been a wild week, as you know. So yesterday, I decided to switch gears and bring us back to the most familiar psalm in the entire Bible. So turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And the title of today's message is Fearlessness in the Face of Death. Fearlessness or fearless in the face of death. Well, I'm sure many of us have this psalm memorized. Please follow along as I read it for us. He says, A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just come before you with hearts full of thankfulness and praise, gratefulness for what you have done for us. Lord, we know that as the world around us burns with fear, we know that you have not called us to live in fear, that you have given us something far greater, that you have conquered death itself. So Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at this text, this very familiar text to all of us, I pray that you would energize our hearts, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve, I pray that we would grow in greater confidence and faith and trust in who you are, what you have done for us, and what you have promised to do. Again, we love you. And we thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. Amen. Amen. Well, when I first arrived at this church, Pastor Bill and I tag-teamed our way through the book of Second Peter. Almost all of you were here for that. You remember us doing that together. And it was a wonderful time. It was a great study. I really enjoyed it. And much like how Peter does in that letter, today, I really want to stir you up. Stir up your memory by way of reminder. And and bring us back to these truths that we already know. So if you grew up in church at all, you know Psalm 23. If you happen to accidentally wander into a Hobby Lobby one afternoon, you know Psalm 23. We all know Psalm 23, right? This is the most familiar psalm in the entire Bible. Our children memorize it, our elderly request it, especially when they know that their time is near. Like a magnet, Psalm 23 pulls us to itself because it is so comforting, because it is so rich and so full. In such a short economy of words, it is just packed to the brim with encouraging truth. It is our go-to psalm 
when hopelessness, despair, and fear set in. It embodies the universal cry of human frailty and dependence upon the divine shepherd for every good thing. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he writes that there is no inspired title for this psalm, and you'll notice that. He says there is no inspired title for this psalm, and none is needed. For it records no special events and needs no other key than that which every Christian may find in his own bosom. I like that. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired psalm for every man. For every man. So let's dive into it this morning. Notice the Holy Spirit-inspired transcription here at the very beginning. He says, a psalm of David. So we have the author. We know that he is the author, but the text doesn't tell us exactly when this psalm was written. And that's okay. I mean, some believe that he wrote this hymn while he was hiding out in the forest at Hereth in 1 Samuel 22. But truthfully, no one can assign a date to this ancient text because there isn't one given. Any, anyone that tells you, oh, well, this was written at this time or that period, they're selling you something. Okay? Because we don't know. We don't know because it doesn't say. We can't speak where Scripture is silent. But at the same time, we do know, just in looking at the text, it must have been sometime after David's youth. He most likely wasn't a child or, or a young man when he wrote it. Because of all the shepherding metaphors, we know that he was a shepherd in Bethlehem when he was younger, but also just the mature perspective that comes from this, especially as it develops and as it unfolds before us. He begins with a strong thesis, this strong thesis. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, shepherding, as many of you know, is one of the oldest and one of the most necessary occupations we have. It goes all the way back to Abel, Adam's oldest son. I mean, think about that for a minute. The second man ever was the first shepherd. That's how old this occupation goes. Shepherding is one of the most tireless occupations. It requires a high level of dedication and commitment. You don't just take care of the sheep when, when you feel like it. I mean, the shepherd is totally invested, totally invested in the life of his care. Sheep depend on him for shelter, medication, and protection. A sheep without a shepherd is sunk. And so David starts things out by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Without the Lord, I'm sunk. I depend on him for everything. Now again, we don't know when this was written. It may have been while he was king. It may have been after he was, uh, well, I'd say after he was king, whenever he was older and, and approaching death. We don't really know. And, and on one hand, it doesn't really matter whether he was king or not. The fact of the matter is, whether he was king or not, he was promised to become the king, and then he became the king, and he was historically one of the greatest kings, if not the greatest kings of Israel. I mean, this is the man of the Davidic covenant, the promise that his descendants would rule on his throne forever and ever. So the opening to this psalm, whenever you think about it, it really does answer the question, who is the king of the king? Who is the shepherd to the shepherd? David says, my shepherd, my king, is the Lord. The Lord, I depend on him for everything. And because of that, I shall not want. I shall not want. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This is one of those times where something might be a little too popular for its own good. And I say that because Psalm 23 is so ingrained in the text, at least our, our English translation is just so set and solid, 
Psalm 23 is one of those passages you just can't mess with as a translator. Okay, I mean, we, we already have our wording that we stick to. You'll notice even as I read from the ESV today, it's not that far. They just took a few THs off of some of the words from the King James and called it good in most cases. And that's by design because this is such a beloved text. People love the Psalms so much and particularly Psalm 23. You can't mess with it. And so this phrase, I shall not want, it's, it's a little weak, even for English. I wish we could go back and change it. Because a much stronger, more accurate translation of this phrase would be, I lack nothing. I lack nothing. Because the tense of this verb is intense. It denotes a a permanent prohibition that will never change. He's saying that God is my shepherd. And so long as he is my shepherd, I won't lack anything. I will never lack a thing. I will never be in a state of need. And I say, now wait a minute, Hans, since when did you become a health and wealth prosperity preacher? And if that's the case, then why aren't you doing anything about this coronavirus? I, as some of you know, Pastor Bill and I went to the Shepherds Conference last week. And those of you who know Pastor Bill and know him well will probably find this amusing. We're sitting there in the airport of Burbank waiting to fly back. And just out of the blue, he starts yelling to random strangers, don't worry, we're going back to Seattle, but don't worry about it because this man is a faith healer. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sitting there and I'm just, all I can do is just, just kind of shrug and tell, tell people to walk by. If, if he were my dad, I'd be embarrassed. You know, like, I, I don't know what to say. This, this man is just with me. Okay, we're traveling. Um, obviously, I'm not a faith healer. I'm not a prosperity preacher. And yet... I'm telling you that the text says here, and it does, very literally, in the Hebrew. He says, I shall not lack. I will never lack. I am never going to have less than what I need. So am I saying that so long as I trust in the Lord, I'll always get what I want? No. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the text is saying either. It would be way out of character for, for David to say that my God and my shepherd is obligated to fulfill my every desire. That's something that David would never say because it is not true. But it would not be strange for him to say, my God and my shepherd will fulfill my every need. That is characteristic. And that is exactly what he's saying here. This is a statement about God's faithfulness, not David's desires. In fact, this whole psalm is about that. This is a psalm about God's faithfulness. This is not a psalm about David's desires. And he can say this because God is a good shepherd, because God is the best shepherd, the supreme shepherd. He tirelessly cares for his sheep, so much so that they lack nothing. They lack nothing because everything they need is in him. So this morning, if you are one of his sheep, then you know, you know that you have a good shepherd. You've seen that. You can testify to God's goodness just like David does. Even when your desires fall through, even when evil is right around the corner or staring you in the face, you know that God is faithful and he is a good shepherd. Even when a national pandemic threatens to take your loved ones away from you, you can stand confident and fearless in the face of evil. Why? Because God is your shepherd. God is your shepherd. Because you belong to him, you lack nothing. 
And that means you have everything. Everything. But like sheep, we get skittish. We get distracted. We start wandering, and before you know it, we're scared. Psalm 23 is here to put that fear to death. We have three stanzas in front of us, three stanzas that we're going to look at this morning. And each one provides a compelling reason to trust God through every season of life. Come what may, here are three reasons to trust and obey this great Savior. Number one, God pilots his people. God pilots his people. Look at verses two and three. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I chose that word pilot carefully and on purpose. And not just because today's sermon is brought to you by the letter P, okay? I chose the word pilot because that's what God does. He pilots us. He does so much more than just show us the way or point us in the right direction, okay? He actually guides us. He leads us. He steers us in the way that we should go. I mean, just look at these active verbs that are here in this text. He makes us. He leads us. He restores us. Obviously, God is the one who is driving the action. God is the one who is doing this to us and for us. Notice he provides rest here in this text. He leads, he restores, and then he leads again. In the ancient world, one of the shepherd's primary duties involved feeding and watering the sheep. I mean, you have to take care of the sheep, right? That's your job. And like us, sheep are easily agitated or spooked, and they won't drink from a spring if the water is crashing against the rocks. I mean, for people, we're referred to as sheep all the time in God's word, right? And then, and then if you ever actually see a sheep, you're like, wow, these animals are really dumb. These animals are stupid, right? Because here you are in a hot desert wasteland, and this thing needs water, and they won't drink. They would rather die. They'd rather starve to death than go anywhere near something that's making a little bit of noise. It's just a little spooked. Well, an experienced shepherd knows where to lead his sheep. He knows the locations of pools of still water where the sheep will remain calm and quiet and completely satisfied. And that is what God does for us. That is what we see here in this text. In the same way our Father knows how to give good things to His children. He provides those life-giving times of refreshment and, and He drives the clouds away because no storm in life will last forever. When the, when the soul breaks, God restores he takes the rain and he leads us to a peaceful drink. But that's not the end. He pilots us further. As soon as we are renewed, he leads us again. And the text says he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now it's very interesting. The word that David chose to use here for paths, it literally means wagon tracks. Okay, this is a very specific word. There were many words that... that I almost called him Paul. There are many words that David could use, but he doesn't use them here. General words for road or path or thoroughfare or, or way. Instead, he uses this very specific word for wagon tracks. He says, he leads me in wagon tracks of righteousness. Righteousness. And, th and he does this to describe the tight nature of God's guidance. These wagon tracks of righteousness, they're not broad paths 
with plenty of wiggle room. They are thin trenches that restrain the traveler to a steady course. It's like when you were a kid and you rode bikes with your friends. I hope you did. I hope you had a childhood as awesome as mine. Okay, you have your friends, you're yelling to your mom as you go out the door, I'm gonna go see my friends, we're gonna ride bikes, I'll see you later. She says, okay, be home by dark, but you don't hear that because you're already gone, right? You're out there, you're riding with your friends, and then all of a sudden, it starts to rain. And let's just say you're traveling on a dirt path. What happens, naturally? I mean, other than you becoming filthy, of course. What happens? You find yourself naturally steering your bike in the lines of the person in front of you, right? Because it's easier. It's much easier than pedaling and pushing hard and trying to find your way through the mud somewhere to the left or to the right. So you end up forming a line, you and your friends, as you go. Similar thing with snow, right? Whenever you're driving in the snow, and you have a lot of snow, you, you end up following within the lines as much as you can where the snow is already packed because it's easier, because it keeps you on track. And it's not nearly as hard as forging your own path. That's very similar to what we see here. That is exactly why David uses this word, this word for wagon tracks, because God's way is always better than ours. It's always better than ours. The good shepherd sets the course and he leads his sheep in steady trails of security. You know, there are times when we believe the lie that our way is better. We all do it. We all fall into that trap. We think that we know better than God, or at least we can help God out. Maybe if we, maybe if we did this or that, it would help expedite things or it would help him along the way, maybe further the mission or further whatever else we have to do. But our way is never good enough. It's never good enough. It's a lot of effort with minimal payoff. Never is and it never will be. God's way is narrowly defined. Paths of righteousness, and they're always good. They are always good because he is always good. And notice his motivation for doing this. It's not based on our goodness, but his. Look again at verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does all of this for the sake of his name for his divine reputation. He puts it all on the line. Believer, your poor performance as a fearful, skittish sheep in no way deflates God's desire to lead you. In no way. Rather, he has put his reputation on the line to ensure that your life will cut it straight. And he already knows our tendencies. He knows our deficiencies. And the God of heaven and earth employs his own high honor, both his motivation and his security. He gives that to us because he has sworn by his own name that he would do it by his own reputation. Now you might be thinking, that's all well and good. That's great, but everything that we have looked at the text so far is positive. It's all positive. Maybe my life isn't so positive right now. I mean, these opening verses, they paint a tranquil scene, but not all of life is found in green pastures and still waters. What about the days when the sun doesn't shine and when the darkness grips your heart, when your throat swells with fear against your windpipe? What about those days? 
What about then, when your desire for life has died and mortality mocks you from the shadows? What do you do then? Where is the firm and steady hand of our piloting shepherd then? Well, that takes us to our second stanza. Our second stanza and our second reason that you can trust God through every season of life. Number two, God protects his people. God protects his people. Look at verse four. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Despite all the relaxation, the the restoration, and the righteousness of the first stanza, we see that even though we find ourselves in a dark valley, I mean, he says, even though, it's certain. He doesn't say, you know, maybe someday I'll find myself in a darker place. He says, no, even though I find myself within this dark valley and I am surrounded by evil, I'm surrounded by threats and danger, Even though, in spite of that, I won't be afraid. The metaphor and the imagery here is striking because when it comes to shepherding, this is the most dangerous part of the job. The western mountains of Judah are full of wadis or gullies that have resulted from runoff erosion. Some of these wadis are wide, allowing for easy, easy travel, while others are narrow, steep, and incredibly dangerous. Extensive valleys of eroded limestone also litter the landscape between Bethlehem and the Dead Sea. These valleys have become natural roads for travelers, thieves, and predatory beasts. Many of them were dark and dangerous in the daytime. But once the sun went down, forget it. You didn't want to travel these roads at night. You didn't want to find yourself in one of these valleys. David most likely had such a gully or valley in mind when he penned this metaphor. Unfortunately, If we were to pull out an ancient map, we're not going to find the Valley of the Shadow of Death anywhere. Believe me, I wish it were there. It's a cool name, right? It sounds cool. Wouldn't it be great to pull out an ancient map and find the Valley of the Shadow of Death? Right there. That's where my band of merry men are going to set camp. In the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. It's not there as awesome as it sounds. What David provides here is called a metonym. It's a specialized metaphor for darkness and deep gloom. He's actually going beyond. Even though death is in the title here that he assigns to this metonym, he's actually going beyond the fear of death. He's just talking about dark nights of the soul. He's talking about depression. He's talking about deep gloom. He's talking about that heavy weight that falls upon you from time to time. This is a dark season of the soul that he describes. And he says, even though my shepherd leads me, into the bright meadow and the green and the blue, he also leads me into the darkness where there is only black and uncertain gloom. And David can say this with certainty because he knows that our shepherd, he pilots people into both. He pilots people into both. No one in this room is a stranger to darkness. No one. As I mentioned at the beginning, right before going into this message, my Beautiful little girl, four years old. I wanted, to, I wanted to strangle that cute little neck of hers last night. And she kept coming out of bed. And she kept, like, just quietly standing there at the foot of our bed. Daddy, Mommy, I'm scared. Oh, okay, go back to sleep. No, I just want to sleep with you. No, go back to sleep. 
just over and over again, back and forth, all throughout the night. I mean, there's something about darkness that grips our heart, right, that fills us with fear. Right now, the world is gripped with the fear of death, and yet God's sheep are not to be afraid of evil. We're not to be afraid of evil. David says, I will fear no evil. And he says it as a matter of fact. He says, I have every good reason in the book right now to be afraid. But I won't be. I won't be. Why? Because you are with me. The great shepherd is with me and I am not alone. We have to remember this. We have to remind ourselves of this constantly. I mean, how often do we think to ourselves, I'm alone. I'm in this by myself. And yet that is never the case. Never the case. Even when we think we we have privacy, we don't. God is always with us. We are never alone. And that is a great comfort and a great terror to mankind. The fact that God is always with us. Whatever darkness we encounter, we are never alone. God is with you. He is your strength. He is your shield and your fortress. He is your ever-present help, your rock and your redeemer. And if that is true for you, then how could you possibly be afraid? How could you possibly be afraid when the greatness of God overshadows the darkness of life and you know that he is with you? James Montgomery Boyce writes, we are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. Isn't that the truth? We need his presence. We need him to be with us because without him, there is so much for us to be afraid of. So much to be afraid of. David says, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, why is that a comfort? Why is that a comfort for David? It's because these are the typical tools of the trade for any shepherd. I mean, and they carried two purposes. They were dual purpose in a sense. You know, the shepherd would carry around a club-like rod, often worn at the belt, and a six-foot staff. And these tools were used. They would come in handy when sheep would wander off and need to be reminded who was in charge. You would just extend that six-foot staff and you would make sure they understood and knew. Like, you're going way off into left field. You need to come back. But they were also used for protection. Used for protection. Aren't you glad that our God has a staff? And who knows how many times he has used it to protect us from harm. And we never even stop to thank him. I mean, so often... More often than not, we focus on the valleys and we act like God is sleeping on the job every time the darkness rises. We don't realize that even though we're killed for the cause of Christ, our good shepherd is with us and we are safe. When Christ is everything to you, he is everything that you need. Everything that you need. So when the world trembles at the thought of death, we can find comfort in the one who has conquered death because he is with us and he has given us everything. Everything. He is our pilot and our protector. He is our great shepherd and nothing gets past his staff without permission. That's number two. God's people are not fearful people because God himself is our protector. And then finally, if this doesn't calm your sheepish heart, look at the last stanza that God provides for his people. God provides for his people. In verse 5, David begins by saying, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. A shift occurs in verse 5. Actually, it occurs a little bit earlier. 
in verse 4, where David is no longer declaring the qualities of God with a shepherding metaphor, okay? Like he's doing that all through verse 4, but then, um, then in verse 5, he makes this shift, having experienced the faithfulness of his God in both good times and bad, he then shifts his attention towards God himself. And that's what we see happen in the middle of verse four. But by now, he is no longer being led, fed, and protected. Instead, he is being provided for in abundance. Look at the language here. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The metaphor shifts from shepherd to host. He goes from shepherd to host. In David's culture, much like ours, when someone invited you over for dinner or prepared a meal, it was typically a gesture of hospitality, unless they were an enemy and they planned on poisoning you or doing something terrible to you at dinner. For the most part, it was a gesture of hospitality to have people over, right? But to do so publicly, especially in the ancient Near East, to do it publicly was a very purposeful gesture. It was used to establish a right relationship between two parties. In other words, by preparing a table for David publicly in the presence of his enemies, God is saying, David and I, we are in right relationship. We are in the right relationship. Essentially, he's saying, David is my homeboy. David is my friend. David and I are close. It is as if to say, you mess with him, you mess with me. I mean, what an incredible privilege. I mean, who who really wants to go toe-to-toe with the God of the universe? right? No one. And we've heard kings and we've heard princes and we've, we've heard presidents and we've heard so many people in the past as we look through history say, God is on our side. And we understand that typically whoever wins gets to write the history and they're the good guys and the guys that lose are the bad guys and, and there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of fluidity whenever it comes to that. We get that. But at the same time, I mean, think about that. David says, no, God is actually on my side. God is on my side. And he is making a public declaration. God is. God is making a public declaration, not just to me that we are in right relationship, but to my enemies. To my enemies. He prepares this table in front of them. And he goes on to say, you anoint my head with oil. You anoint my head with oil. When kings such as David were anointed with oil, such as with a coronation, it was a sign of appointment and equipping for a royal office. But that's probably not what David has in mind here. That's probably not what he's talking about. Instead, he probably has something far more disgusting in mind, in one sense. Because another use for oil in the ancient Near East was to rub it into your beard and into your hair to help suffocate lice. Yeah, that's Psalm 23, lice. It was also customary for a generous host to provide an assortment of fine oils for their banquet's guests. Since the scene here is a banquet, not a coronation, it's likely that David has this custom in mind when he writes this. These oils would have smelled wonderful and produced a glistening sheen on the guest's forehead. According to the ancient text of one Assyrian king, he would drench the foreheads of his dinner guests with the choicest oils. I mean, think of that. If you, if you were invited to go see the king, you would just come prepared to be drenched in oil because that was the typical custom of the day. In each of these scenarios, having food prepared publicly before his enemies and being doused with oil before dinner, David's needs 
are being exceeded by a refreshing host. They're being exceeded by a refreshing host. Our God is not only the good shepherd who pilots and protects, he is also the good host who provides. But there's more. David says, my cup overflows. That's just another way of saying my cup is more than full. It's spilling out all over the place. It's creating a mess. It's not only to the brim, it's actually spilling over. My cup is more than full. And he says this simply as a statement of fact. He's not naming or claiming anything here. He is just simply saying, I lack nothing. My cup is brimming over, and I have more than I need. So I have to ask, is this true for you? Is it true for you? Has the good shepherd become your everything, and therefore you lack nothing? Has the good host met you with more than a full cup? You see, what's good for the father is good for the son. And according to Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, in him the whole fullness of, de- of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness. And get this, he goes on to say, don't miss this, he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The whole fullness of deity, that's all of it. Every aspect, every last part of it, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ, our good shepherd and host. You don't need to look anywhere else for provision. Christ is the provider of everything we need and more. And that brings us to the very end of the psalm. Look at the very last verse again. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Note the confidence, the confidence here at the end. He says, surely, surely, for this moment and for always, for the rest of eternity, for days without end, the good host will be my source of goodness and mercy, and he will be my eternal home. That's good news. That's really good news for everyone who is in Christ today. Our shepherd and host has us covered. Ultimately, what this psalm is saying is that he won't let us starve. He won't let us thirst. He won't let us wander away from narrow tracks of righteousness. He won't let us go it alone. He won't let us become overtaken by evil. He won't let our enemies win. And he won't let our needs go unmet. And this is what the believer has in the Lord. If he is your shepherd, you already lack nothing. Well, Alexander McLaren once said, the world could spare many a large book better than this sunny little psalm. It has dried many tears and supplied the mold into which many hearts have poured their peaceful faith. This is a tremendous psalm. I want to remind you that David's shepherd is our shepherd. That his host is our host. That these are the unchangeable attributes of an immutable Godhead. Hebrews 13.8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always pilot, protect, and provide for his people. So here's some questions that I want to present to you this morning. Let me ask you this, Christian. Are you scared? 
Are you scared? If so, don't be afraid. The good shepherd is with you and he is well equipped. You cannot be destroyed because you are not alone. He is here and you have nothing to be afraid of. Do you sometimes fall out of step? Does the path you're on seem unclear and full of turns? Then take heart because he knows your every failure and he will lead you in narrow trenches, wagon tracks of righteousness. You won't lose your way because he is leading you for the sake of his divine reputation. Are you worried about the future? Don't be. He sees your needs and you will never be in a state of lack. Are you weak and defenseless? Our good host has already prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And no one is able to stand against his power. Are you just tired? Are you tired in need of refreshment? He anoints your head with fine oils and he fills your cup to the max. Have your circumstances caused you to doubt God? Are you afraid he's forgotten about you or or maybe he'll eventually throw you away like yesterday's newspaper? Friend, he has already prepared for you a permanent address. He has already given you the key to his house and you will live with him for the rest of your days and beyond. This is an incredibly uplifting song. But all these encouraging confidence boosters come with a condition. They all come with a condition. If you would lack nothing, the Lord must be your everything. He must be your shepherd. And maybe you're here today and you say, I don't have a shepherd. Or maybe you're, you're starting to realize that the shepherd you do have isn't a good one. Because it's not the Lord. Because no one can pilot, protect, and provide for you like God can. So maybe you're thinking, wow, I wish that were me. I wish that I was a part of that flock. I'm in the wrong flock. How do I get in the right one? Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and turn to John 10. John 10. Once you hit the New Testament, it's the fourth book in. John 10. And starting in verse 11. Look at what Jesus says. He says, I am the good shepherd. He just says it, point blank. There you go. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's pretty clear. Now look what he says in verse 14. He says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen, there is only one good shepherd. One good shepherd. And his name is Jesus. After living a perfectly righteous, obedient, and and just supreme life, where he obeyed absolutely everything. You want to talk about about thin wagon tracks of righteousness? Jesus followed that path perfectly. Perfectly. He never deviated once. After living a perfectly righteous life, he suffered an agonizing death on the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sins, and three days later, he killed death. He destroyed the grip that death has on us, the fear of death. And right now, today, he is waiting. He is waiting for the appointed time when he will come back to this earth to judge the living and the dead. He laid down his life for his sheep. 
so they would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But for those who are not his sheep, they're referred to as goats. An eternity for a goat is hell. It is a hell of everlasting torment, suffering, and separation. Listen, friend, at one time we were all goats. None of us deserve heaven. We all deserve hell. But God, rich in mercy, poured out his wrath against sinners on his son. That whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord and believe that he is the son of God, crucified in the place of sinners, that if you would deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Christ daily, repent and reject that sin that promises hell and put him on that cross. If you would turn to Christ, he would never turn you away. He will never turn you away. So come to Jesus, the good shepherd, and cry out to him. Confess your sin and turn away from the idols of your heart to serve the one true living God. If you have not done that, do it today. Do it today while there is still time. And for the rest of us, us thankful sheep, let's not be afraid. Come what may, whatever this world brings, whatever happens in the days ahead, let's be as those who walk and live without fear. Let's not be stupid, right? Let's not be reckless, let's not be careless, let's not be brash. But above all things, let's not be afraid. There is no room for fear in the Christian life. We have no reason to be afraid because our shepherd is a good shepherd. Our shepherd is a loving shepherd, a wonderful shepherd who cares for us, who has cared for us even to the point of death, death on a cross. And he is certainly a shepherd worth following. The Lord is our shepherd and our host. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Psalm 23, as familiar as it is. Lord, we know that you have guided us, you have directed us through your word into paths of righteousness that are for our good, because you are good, because you are the best. Lord, we love you, we trust in you. I do pray for our congregation. I pray for those folks who are at home today who've been watching the live stream. I pray for those folks who are here today. Lord, I pray that you would protect us. Lord, that you would protect our community, that you would give our leaders wisdom, even as certain decisions are made. Lord, I pray that we would be good citizens, that we would submit to the laws of the land so long as they don't conflict with what you have commanded in your word. I pray that we would be sensible people, that we would not put others at risk, but at the same time, I pray that we would not be afraid to go and not be afraid to be used of you in this difficult time. God, I pray that you would use us. I pray that you would give us that wisdom, but also give us the strength and the confidence that we need to face these days without fear. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you have provided for us. We lack nothing. We lack nothing because of everything that you have given and everything that you have done. 
in your Son. We love you. We praise you. We give you all glory and honor. You are due everything that we have and more. We thank you for being our shepherd and our good hosts. Amen. Amen.